The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But this morning, I'd like for you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we're going away from our regular study of the Gospel of Matthew today, because today is the day that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do that in the evening service. But I thought it would be good for us today to have a message on the Lord's Supper on this Sunday morning that will, I think, help prepare our hearts for what we're about to do tonight. And let me just very briefly tell you about my thought processes here. Uh, I was preparing the message as I normally would to preach this message on Sunday night because when we have the Lord's Supper, I always have a, a, a message that's geared towards the supper itself and we talk about that. So I was in the process of doing that, but it struck me that the message that the Lord was having me to prepare would really be much better preached on a Sunday morning because those who come on Sunday nights to the Lord's Supper are going to be members of the church, and, and what I have to say about this would be good for them, but would actually be much better for those who aren't yet members of the church or are contemplating membership in the church or whatever, that this would be a good message for us to just to hear and to try to understand how important that the fellowship of the Lord's Supper is to God's people. Now, I've always been one who... Um, thinks that the Lord's Supper ought to be observed in the evening. And that's not a hard and fast rule that I think that if you did it in the morning that somehow that would invalidate what you're doing. But I'm from the South and I tend to think that supper is a night. And so uh, it's it's the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's breakfast. And, And interestingly, there was at least one time where the Lord served breakfast... And that was in John chapter 21. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he met the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. They were out there fishing. And he was on the shore, and he summoned them to come to the shore. And when they got there, he had some bread and some fish that was baking on the fire. And Jesus said to them, come and dine. And I remember sometimes that when, uh, sometimes at the Lord's Supper celebration when I was younger, we used to sing that old song, Come and Dine. And I really had no idea why we would sing that because it doesn't have anything to do with the Lord's Supper. Now, in, in that Lord's breakfast, there was fish that was served, and there was no fish in the Lord's Supper. I know that makes some of you unhappy. Eric is probably very unhappy that there is no fish in the Lord's Supper. But I'm, uh, you know, I don't set the menu for it. So uh, if you're upset about that, then you have to talk to the Lord about it. So we don't observe the Lord's breakfast. Uh, we don't do it in the morning. We are going to do it in the evening. And so we will gather here tonight to fellowship around the Lord's Supper. But I did think that it would be good for everyone to hear this message and just to contemplate this about why that we should consider being members of the Lord's Church and how important that is. And what I'd like to do here is to take you back into the New Testament to the first observances of the Lord's Supper as the first church met together to do this. Now, as you know, the practice is modeled after the Passover supper that Christ had with his disciples on the same night that he was betrayed to be crucified. And in Matthew chapter 26, we have the story told about the institution of the supper. We have that in Mark chapter 14 and also in Luke chapter 22, the one we read just a moment ago. And when you come to the Gospel of John, John doesn't talk about what took place at the supper, but rather he takes his narrative right after the supper had ended, and that was when Jesus gird himself with a towel and he bent down to wash the disciples' feet. And that action that he showed was a very clear demonstration of what happens to the heart that is, that is worshiping God in gratitude and thinks about the great thing that Christ is going to do or did do on the cross. And Jesus demonstrated how we are to love one another and serve him with a heart of gratitude and actually help one another in the Lord's church. And then the Apostle Paul, who wasn't present at the Lord's Supper, was given a special revelation of it 
And he relates that in his well-known passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now what I would like to do is to show you what the church did after Christ was gone. After that first night when he gave the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper was not a one-time event. But this was something that the disciples continued with. It was to be a continuing memorial, a perpetual memorial. As the Apostle Paul said, we are to observe it until Christ comes again. Now we can see that in Acts chapter 2 that the original apostles believed that because this is what they did. It became a regular practice for them to observe the Lord's Supper. Now, if you look at with me in Acts chapter 2, and I'm just going to leave you sitting there today. Uh, Acts chapter 2, you won't need to stand. Uh, it says verse, I think it's verse 40 there on your screen, but let's back up just a little bit to verse number 37. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now that, that's a phrase that you might want to underline. The promise is to as many as the Lord our God shall call. That fits in perfectly with the messages we preached in the previous Sunday mornings. Verse number 40, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, the statement that Luke, the historian, makes here comes at the end of, of a great Holy Spirit-fueled message that was given by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And when Peter preached, the Holy Spirit gripped the hearts of the people that were there, this vast multitude, and there were 3,000 people who believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were saved. And by the way, the people that Peter preached to were those who were complicit in the death of Christ. And this is what Peter preached on Pentecost. He preached about their guilt of crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they heard that message, the Bible says that they were gripped in their hearts, they were pricked in their hearts, they believed in Christ, and then they were baptized and added to the Lord's church. Now in verse number 42, we have the result of the common faith of these people. It produced, their faith produced a common action. And it wasn't a matter of having to explain what Christians are to do after they receive Christ as Savior. He didn't have to, they didn't have to explain this, but they, they did what comes natural to Christians. They began to gather and they started to fellowship. And I think that this is a, a very appropriate message to preach today because we have been so long in our study of the church on Sunday nights and the church is the place of Christian fellowship and it's as much a part of the new nature of Christians to fellowship with one another as it was a part of our old nature to continue in the habits of our sins. And there's a reason for this. There is a reason why we understand now that we want to come together for fellowship with God's people. And that's because we have a spirit that lives in us. There is the Holy Spirit of God who comes into us when we receive Christ as Savior. And that same spirit affects us all so that he changes our desires. We've been born of the Spirit of God and that spirit becomes the guide for everything that we do in our Christian lives. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. And it is that one spirit that drives our fellowship. It's the spirit that causes us to want to fellowship with one another. Now, in light of that, I'd like to point out first today that fellowship is always spirit-dependent. Fellowship is always spirit-dependent. There is only one thing 
that draws us together into a place like this on Sunday morning. Why should we be here? We all have things to do. We're all very busy in our lives. Now, most people call this the weekend. It's just after last week's work, this is the weekend, when actually it's not the weekend, today's the beginning. But we call it the weekend, and so we think, well, we've got so many things to do. We're, we're so busy about our lives, and what we have to do, of course, varies extensively from individual to individual. So all of you have something that's going on in your life. Why are you here? Why are you here in this place on a Sunday morning? Why should you be here and not someplace else? And if you are a child of God, you know the answer to that, that you are Holy Spirit driven to be in this place where you can fellowship with God's people. That you want to come together and to honor Christ as his body. You, you understand that, you feel that desire, there's that pull of this place to bring you here to be with God's people. Now you can take, for example, the great diversity of people that were present in Jerusalem for Pentecost. There were people there that were from all over the parts, all parts of the empire. They had gathered to celebrate the Jewish feast. And you can well imagine that there were many different people in different stages of their lives with different aspirations and different purposes. In fact, you just look at the Jewish leaders and you find that they had their own purpose for being there at Pentecost. It was a very selfish purpose. They were there because there were so many people that the high priest, it was time for them, and the, priest, the priestly order, it was time for them to strut their stuff. They wanted to be recognized. So they put on their long robes, and with their tassels on them, they strapped on their phylacteries to their arms, to their foreheads, and then they went out and showed the people as they made the sacrifices what great men they were. Well, Pentecost was this great once-per-year event that drew more people to Jerusalem than any other time in the year. Thousands were there. But it wasn't common fellowship that drove them to be there. And you say, why do you say that? Well, it was a matter of law. It was a matter of responding to what the law said. They must come there because of what the law says. And so you have different Jews there. You have the Hebraic Jews and you have the Hellenistic Jews. And there was often conflict between them. There wasn't a sense of, there wasn't a sense of camaraderie. There wasn't a sense of fellowship among them. But rather on one side, there was an air of superiority. That was the Hebrew Jews. On the other side, there's an air of envy. That's the Hellenistic Jews. So they aren't driven in a sense of fellowship. But then there was something that happened on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached, and the Holy Spirit moved them. And these people heard the gospel. They were regenerated, and they came to faith in Christ. And at that point, everything changed for them. Now they're a new group. Now they're no longer independents. But they are dependents, united by the spirit that was within. Paul said in Romans, we being many are one body. In Ephesians 4, 6 he said, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So here is one new group, no longer individuals, but a body that is united by the Holy Spirit. United in one mind, in one hope, in one goal. And that is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ through his church. Now let's see how that was accomplished. They were spirit dependent. How? Well, they were spirit dependent in their doctrine. Verse number 42 says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, when a person comes to faith in Christ, there is this recognition that there is only one truth. People are not saved with a diversification of beliefs. There is one faith. There is one Lord. Just as we read, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, sometimes... Here at Berean Baptist Church, we're criticized for being too narrow. We're criticized because we say our way is the only way and that we're intolerant of other beliefs. And to those charges, we plead guilty on all counts. Guilty. And we are guilty because 
And we are narrow because we know that Christ was narrow. He said that there is a broad way that leads to destruction. And he said there is a narrow way that leads to everlasting life. And we believe that there's only one way because Jesus said, I am the way. And the apostles said, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one way. And neither did Christ or the apostles give an option for what you believe, an option for other beliefs. Christianity is exclusive. It is his way or it's no way. And so to that third charge, we must say that is, this is a necessary consequence. We are intolerant because only one way just doesn't leave us any wiggle room. We have no place to go. He says one way, that's where we got to stick. And the one way that he says is his way. Now, folks, this is what you get when you become a Christian. The same Holy Spirit comes to live in all of us. So we aren't contrary in our ways because the Holy Spirit does not lead contrarily in his ways. The Scripture says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And so we don't have a diversity of doctrine because we have one Lord. And so what is the outcome of this unity of the Spirit? Well, it's all of us thinking the same way about doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. The apostles' doctrine is their teaching. And who was their instructor? Their instructor was Jesus Christ. And so we see here that when it says that the people continued in the apostles' doctrine, that's just another way of saying that as they followed the apostles, they were following Jesus Christ. And Paul said the very same, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So we all get this. We all get this same spirit, and it is that Holy Spirit that holds us together in one mind on all of these great doctrinal issues of the faith. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit for our regeneration, and we remain dependent upon him throughout the rest of our Christian lives as a guide who directs us into the truths of the gospel. Now notice a, notice a second result of common faith. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit also in worship. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now this is really the main point that I want to bring you to here in this particular area in relation to the Lord's Supper. It was their fellowship together in corporate worship that brought the disciples and their converts together to break bread. Now, in the New Testament, breaking bread can refer to the common meals or it can refer to the Lord's Supper, and the meaning is determined by the context. Now, here in this context, it, it makes no sense to say that they continued steadfastly in eating breakfast and lunch and dinner. I mean, most of us don't have to really worry about continuing steadfastly in eating our common meals, and all you have to do is look at our spare tires to tell you that we don't have to be encouraged to eat. We're going to do that every day. So obviously, he must be talking, Luke is recording something here, about the Lord's Supper. He's not talking about common meals. And so they continued fastly in the apostles' doctrine and in breaking of bread. That is the observance of the Lord's Supper. They continually kept the Lord's Supper because it was a memorial of the death of Christ. What he had done for them. Now let me point out something here. That the common experience of the Holy Spirit in Christians will lead us to worship. When you know him, when you know Christ, the Holy Spirit in you leads you to worship him. Now we have to what? Meet together, don't we? We have to meet together to fellowship in the Lord's Supper. We, we don't do that separately. We come together. And our observance of the Lord's Supper is one of the highest ways that we worship God in the Christian church today. And worship is not to be ignored, never is it to be ignored, and especially when we have a command in the Word of God for this worship, specifically commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it was solemnly commanded on the night that Jesus was betrayed. So says Paul. And so when you refuse 
Christ or would you refuse him in that, in that moment of reflection when he knew that when he broke that bread and when he poured that cup that it meant something very special because it would represent his body and his blood. It was a very deeply personal issue to him and those things are represented body and blood in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And so we would have to ask, do you refuse to listen and to heed the plea to remember what Christ went through? That's what he's telling us when he said, do this in remembrance of me. He's pleading with you to remember what he did with his body and his blood on the cross of Calvary. Now that's something that Christians are not going to forget. Christians do not forget this. They remember this and the desire is going to be in us to worship as he said to worship. The Holy Spirit will not let you forget. And something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong when you have Christians who continually forsake the Lord's table. Something is also seriously wrong when a church meets together for worship and some have determined, well, there are just more important things for me to do. I don't really need to be at church. I have more important things to do. You are forsaking the worship and the fellowship of God's people. And there's another problem that stems from this. There are some people who have decided that what they will do is just to ignore church altogether. They don't want to be members of a church. They don't want to be part of a church. And yet we find in the New Testament that that is a prerequisite for participation in the Lord's Supper. This is a church ordinance. And so you just can't waltz in sometime and say, well, I'm going to take the Lord's Supper and you will partake of his body and his blood, and yet you've refused his church. Now what does the scripture say? Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so to spurn the church is to spurn Christ. And you can't do that and worship him at the same time. There is a call to worship in the supper. And you can't obey the call unless you are united in the body of Christian fellowship. Now you can see here then how the Spirit knits us together. We're dependent upon Him to keep us in this narrow track of understanding of our mutual fellowship and our love. He guides us to the supper and the worship of Him as an expression of the common love that we have for Him. Now let's move on just a little bit here. Let me expand on that last thought a bit. Number two for you today is that fellowship is never self dependent. Fellowship is never self-dependent. Christianity was not designed to be about you. It was never designed for you, to be about you individually. Now, I do know that everybody teaches today that it is all about you, that you are the highest consideration of all, that you are to think of yourself, and everything you do is to drive you because you deserve to be happy, you deserve to be this, you deserve to be that. Everything is all about you. But Christianity is not about you. Christianity is when, when you have a, a feeling for other people. But you see an individuality among people today. They, they just think about themselves. And this is why you see the, the individual pushing himself all the time. This is why you see crazy haircuts. And it's why you see tattoos all over somebody from head to toe. It's why you see piercings from the nose down to the toenails. And they do that because they have to stand out. They have to be individuals. They must be different from the crowd. And what they do with that is point to themselves. Now you'll pardon me for just a minute because I'm going to go off here. And, and uh, you already know how I feel about this. Most of you do. But Facebook is one of the weirdest expressions of what I'm talking about. In my opinion, Facebook is the narcissist dream world. And that's because there you can talk all about you. You can put every little thing that you do up there for everybody to see. I know there's some of you that use it for other purposes. It's a time-consuming thing and a time-waster in my opinion, but you use it for other purposes... Uh, And there's a reason why I don't have Facebook and 500 people that I've befriended. I'm just not interested in what you ate today. I'm not interested in how many bowel movements you've had this week. That's a little crude, but 
I, that, I didn't know what a way, better way to say this. I'm not interested in what you're doing. You know, I think your kids are cute, but there's only so much cute I can take. I mean, I, I really not, I, I'm irritated by this thing of social media because it removes the personal interaction that we have and the mutual concern that we have for one another. It puts everybody else in the background and becomes a platform for personal expression. The world is about me and it's only about me. But Christianity is not about individuality. Christianity is about your personality fading into the background in favor of the exaltation of someone else. And that exaltation the Bible describes as the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And his church are the people, folks. You are to fade into the background and exalt Jesus Christ, lift him up, not self, lift up Christ and not you. And that's a quite different perspective than all the self-gurus and self-esteem teaching that you hear today. Listen to Osteen. Well, don't listen to him, but let me just tell you about him. If, if you listen to his messages, determine how much is said about you and how much is said about Jesus Christ. And I'll promise you, the balance is way off. Christianity is not about the individual. I remember you, uh, remind you rather of this passage in our study of the church, Ephesians 3.21. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Glory to Christ, through, in, to Christ Jesus throughout all ages. That glory comes through the church. Now let me bring us back to the point here. Christianity is designed for the glory of Christ. And according to the scripture, Christ receives that glory through his church. And so a Christian outside of the church will never be able to give Christ the full complement of glory that he designed. Not in the way that he designed it to be given. Now let me give you three aspects of fellowship that show you that it can never be self-dependent. First of all, it is social. It's social. Fellowship is social, and that ought to be clearly evident by the word itself. You can't fellowship by yourself. Now, our purpose here is to talk about the church, and so we can rule out fulfilling the social aspect of Christianity by saying, well, I know that I need to be social. I know that I need to get together with people, and so what I will do, I will join the Kiwanis Club, and I'll, and I'll find a community project that I can be involved in. Well, you can do those things without the Holy Spirit. Here, in the book of Acts, we see that 3,000 individuals were drawn into a different fellowship. And this is where Christ was the center and not community. Christ comes into the heart of individuals, but they don't stay individuals. They are molded together into one body that has one purpose. Now, when Peter preached that great message, the people said, What shall we do? The gospel had penetrated their hearts and they wanted to know what is the outward expression of what's just happened in our heart. And the answer to the question was repent and be baptized. And what happened upon their baptism? It says they were added to the church. They continued in the fellowship of the church. And as you observe the development of Christianity throughout the New Testament, you find it's always the church. The apostle Paul is always going out and doing what? Starting churches. The Pauline epistles are proof of it. And in the cases where Paul wrote to individuals, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, it's the church that stands in the background of all of that. That's the background issue. Now here's the thing, folks. Paul did not write 400 letters to all the individuals that were in the church at Corinth. He wrote two letters to all the believers collectively in the church. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that for them to get the benefit of what Paul wrote, they had to come together in the church. They had to be present there together. Now the letters that he wrote to his, te his teachings that he wrote were for the church. They were read to the church. And that's what I'm doing with you today. I don't visit all of your houses to deliver this sermon. Although sometimes I think it might be better because then I would have your undivided attention. And you wouldn't be looking up on your cell phone. You wouldn't be texting while I'm preaching and making Facebook posts while I'm preaching, which goes on. And you wouldn't be talking to 
somebody sitting next to you when I'm trying to talk. No, I bring the message to the church and we are a body together. So no wonder the book of Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. It's a social thing, folks. An unattached Christian simply doesn't work. There aren't any allowances in the New Testament for unattached Christianity, freelance Christianity. We must fellowship. Unless you do, you can't continue steadfastly in doctrine and worship. Now, secondly, fellowship is never self-dependent because it is outward. A Christian is to be attached to other believers. The Holy Spirit imparts a new life, that's certain. An individual life for us, that's certain. But he also produces an outward life. A Christian is to be an individual, but he is also to be in this spiritual organization. Now, I talked with a young man once who said that he didn't like church because he didn't like organized religion. Now, some people think that those who say that are deep thinkers. They are profound thinkers. What a profound thing to say. I don't like organized religion. And they have determined in their brain that the church has lost its moorings and it's drifted away from the New Testament model, as if they were capable of judging that in the first place. But let me say this to you, that that is impossible. A true church can never drift away from New Testament moorings unless you believe that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. He said in Matthew 16, 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that is the massive rock of himself, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There is going to be a true church in the world always, and it will not drift from the New Testament moorings because it can't. The Apostle Paul said, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. It can't drift away from its New Testament moorings because the Great Commission says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. There is nothing profound or noble in saying, I don't like the church because I don't like organized religion. That is not a statement of faith that what the Bible says is true. And the Bible says that whatever is not of faith is sin. And so when you have a Christian who's outside of the church, you have a Christian who is in sin. Do you follow me? Furthermore, this fellow said that he didn't like organized religion, so I think that he must have preferred disorganized religion. And that's what you call chaos. And God is not the author of confusion. God is an author, or God is a God of organization, and it's shown by the meticulous interdependency of a functioning universe. Why would God change his modus operandi for New Testament Christians? Now, the church is organized, and it's centered on certain godly principles. There is the preaching of the gospel, and there is baptism, and there is instruction. That's what we read in the Great Commission. The commission is given to the church as a church and not to individuals as individuals. Now, I know some people may dispute that statement, but I think that I can back that up. The gospel was committed to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do I know that? Well, we just break it down. We go to Romans chapter 10, and there Paul wrote, How shall they preach? except they be sent. And then you go to Acts 13, and there you find the church in Antioch praying and fasting and laying their hands on Paul and Barnabas and doing what? Sending them out to preach. How shall they preach unless they be sent? Folks, that is the job of the church. It is also the commission of the church to baptize. We just read at Acts 2 that Paul preached and people believed and they were baptized. Who was it that baptized them? Well, it was the apostles. They were commissioned by Christ as the first church. And so baptism doesn't come on, on the hands or at the hands of an individual who just says, well, you know, I think I'm going to go out and baptize somebody today. 
No, it is a church ordinance. And that's why when I bring somebody in front of the church who's been saved and they desire baptism, that I ask you for permission to baptize. That's because it's a church ordinance. It's not my ordinance. We do it under the authority of the membership of this church. And then there is a third element in this commission, and that is to teach. That is to instruct people to observe all that the Lord has commanded. And there's where we get the Lord's Supper in the equation, because this is what Christ has commanded in our worship to him. He said, this do ye in remembrance of me. We instruct in the Lord's commands. Now, I would have to ask you, how many times does the Kiwanis Club serve the Lord's Supper? How many times did you go to McDonald's? And sit with the people there and say, well, let's have the Lord's Supper here at McDonald's. No, you don't do that. You go to the church. We come together. The Lord puts something in your heart as an individual that moves you to get up off of the couch and to go outward and to get into the organization that preaches and baptizes and teaches you to observe. And then I also have to ask you this question. How much more do you learn from the preaching of the church than being elsewhere? How much more do you learn? How much more do you learn even this by adding more times to your worship experience than just a Sunday morning? I'm glad that people come on Sunday mornings, but I can tell you that you can get a great deal more learning if you come at other times. If you can come on a Wednesday night, for instance. You know, on Sunday mornings, the the preaching is not interactive. And, And it's not that way because I don't think, and I don't think the Bible teaches, that the pulpit is a place where we discuss things. The pulpit is a place of authority. This is not a time for you to add your observations to what I have to say in this message that the Lord has given me. So I don't call on you to raise your hand and say, what do you think about that point? I'm not interested in what you think about that point, at least not at this point. (laughs) Now, if you want to come to me later and talk about it, that's all right. I'll be very interested in what you have to say. But not now. But Wednesday night's different because there I come down on the floor and uh, I'm not up here, I'm down there and I teach and I ask questions. Or take questions. And 90% of the questions that are asked are what someone else would ask if you didn't ask. And you would learn so much more if you would just get going outward and not be stuck in your own little world of doing what you have to do. You would learn a whole lot more. Now, I realize that Wednesday nights are difficult for some people. You can't get here. But I'm saying there's still got to be that desire. There still has to be that desire to learn the Word of God. And if you can be here, this is the best possible place that you can be in the fellowship of God's people. Now, let me point out another important fact about outward Christianity. And that is that when you get saved, you become a saint. Did you know that? You become a saint. You don't have to die to become a saint. You don't have to go through a canonization process with men in funny hats and dresses in order to be a saint. Now, when you trust Christ, you are a saint. And did you know that there's only one time in the New Testament where the word saint is used in the singular? Only one time. In, in Philippians 4.21... It says, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. There Paul is writing to the pastor of the church or whatever. And he says, greet the saint. Greet greet every saint. And, And every saint that we get a plurality there anyway, don't we? Saint is singular there. But he's writing to the church collectively. In all of the cases, Paul says things like this. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, under the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Paul didn't say that you were called to be a saint. We are saints that come together in the church for fellowship, study, and prayer. And so we get out of our individual houses, we go outward Because our fellowship is outward and not self-dependent. Now let me close then with this third aspect of fellowship, which shows us it can never be self-dependent. Thirdly, it is virtuous. Fellowship is virtuous. How can you be virtuous in isolation? You, you, You just can't declare yourself to be virtuous. Virtue is what other people say about you. 
Virtue is when you come into the relationship with other people. As the Bible says, be ye kind one to another. Love one another. Be patient with each other. Don't be angry with each other. Let me stop there for just a minute. Let me talk for just a moment about anger. Don't be angry with each other. Do you know one of the problems that we have when you're living in your own little world of social media and your emails and your tweets and your texts and such? You, you can't hear the inflection of speech. You, you can't judge the attitude by watching the eyes. You can't distinguish playful teasing from hateful sarcasm. And my cardinal rule, which to my chagrin I often break, is not to discuss contentious issues in emails. When you can't judge by the hearing of the voice and seeing the body actions, often you can respond wrongly. And what you write is often interpreted in the wrong way. You see, what we need to do is stop all of that stuff and get together to discuss things so that we don't become angry with each other. Oh, I just got defriended. Get together, discuss that then. Why would a church member defriend another church member? My question is why they got Facebook in the first place. Then the Bible says here that we are to serve one another. How can you do that by yourself? Virtuous Christians aren't made in a vacuum. So how can this scripture be possible? Ephesians 4.32, if you're detached as a Christian. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now Paul is not speaking there about going to the grocery store and being tenderhearted towards the checker. The other day I was in Safeway and I was waiting in line. And there was a lady that was talking to the checker. She was in front of me. And this conversation kept going on and on and on. And I, I said, I, you know, I'm in a hurry here. I've got to get out of here. So I felt like just reaching over to take the celery and whap them both up beside the head. Let's, let's, let's get moving here. The Bible says that we are to forgive one another. And that's not talking about forgiving the checker at Safeway. There's no forgiveness for him. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, folks. This is talking about the church. This was the church in Ephesus that Paul was writing to. Ephesians 4.32 is about the church, local church. And the main emphasis emphasis is always the church. We have to get together to practice Christian virtues. Treating people like God wants you to treat them is always gratifying. It helps them and it helps you because in that moment you can feel the life of Christ surging through your veins because you're doing what Christ would do. That's our goal, isn't it? To be as Christ was. Do what Christ did. Now do you remember how I began the message? After the supper, Christ bent down and washed feet. He took the role of a servant and that was virtuous. That was a self-debasing action. He washed feet. And did you know this? When you get this practice right in the church, that if you practice virtue in here, it'll start to spill out out there, and it will spill out to the lost people, and you might actually forgive the checker at Safeway after all. You learn what it is to be virtuous. Now let me give you an example of this. Last week I told you I don't give illustrations, don't give examples. I'm breaking my rule. Last month, the government used our building for the primary election. This is what they usually do. We, we give our building here as a polling place, a precinct for people to vote. And we like to help. We're, we're willing to help. But it gets on my nerves how disrespectful that people can be to our building. And that goes for voters. It goes for the election workers too. Because we've come back here on a Wednesday after election on Tuesday and we come back to broken bathroom fixtures. We come back to cokes that are spilled on the floor, to messes that are in the kitchen and such things. And I was thinking about that on that Tuesday morning as I drove into the church, thinking about just the irritations that we have trying to deal with this, trying to help them. And I pulled into the church and there... I saw that an election worker had blocked off my parking spot. Right in front of my personal sign, 
they had put a handicap sign that said voter preferred parking, $250 fine. Now, you can mess with a lot of things, but you better watch out if you violate my parking spot. So I went ahead and I pulled into my parking spot anyway and I took their sign and I threw it over the fence. No, actually, I didn't throw it over the fence, but I moved it. And I strutted into the church in triumph. And I sat down in my office, and I was there all for about five minutes. And I started to think. I started to think. Um, First of all, I thought, how dare they move my parking space and make me park with commoners? That was one thing that I thought about. But I began to think about this, and I could just envision somebody coming into the election and complaining, a handicapped person coming in and complaining that they really couldn't get close enough, and it was hard on them to get into the building to vote. And I can envision these election workers coming into my office, the pastor of Berean Baptist Church, and trying to enforce a $250 fine. And then I envisioned me giving an interview to the press Democrat, which would probably happen as to why I would do such a thing. And that the election workers would come in and they'd say, can't you just give up your parking spot for one day? And I thought, well, this is not really a Christian thing to do. And so I went out and I moved my car and I put the sign back where it belonged and I parked my car in another spot, in another place in the parking lot, far away from them, of course. And then I sulked all the way back into the office. Now, here, here's the reason that I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this because Christianity stops you from exercising all of your rights. It will stop you from demanding your rights. And that's what the world's about today. And I have to have my rights. It's about me. Christianity stops you from that. It causes you to give up your rights. And if you help somebody, it's not going to hurt you. And if it does hurt you, that's okay. Because you'll live. And you'll live better. Because that's what Christ would do. So remember that. Remember that. But don't think I'm going to give up my parking spot to you. Act like Christ. And when, when you become a Christian, you think about things like this. Now, let me point it out to you simply. You can't be the right kind of Christian without being a part of the Lord's church. It doesn't fit because it's not God's plan. It doesn't work any other way but this. No Christian is fulfilled without the church. It can't happen. Now, let me bring this back full circle. My topic is the Lord's Supper. And the greatest display of fellowship that we have with the Lord and with each other is when we come to the Lord's table. It's there that the Holy Spirit recalls to our minds the unspeakable joy of knowing Christ as Savior. That we are a church together in the fellowship of the Spirit. I received an email from one of our members a few weeks ago. And the email said, Pastor Smith, I'm not going to be there on Wednesday night. And I'm not going to be there on Sunday. I'm going to be out of town. And I like emails like that because they're considerate. It says, we are a family. And if I'm not there, I know that you're going to worry about me. Now, isn't that what families do? Have you tried leaving home for a few days and not telling anybody where you are? Have you ever tried that? Well, no, you're not going to try that because, you know, that's not how families operate. And this is what you get when you become a part of a church. It's kind and considerate. It's a loving loving fellowship that we have with each other. And if you really understand church, you'll understand this. We are in one mind. We have one spirit. And if you're still doing your own thing, then you just don't get this. You haven't yet understood it. You are self-dependent and not spirit-dependent. Now, I hope that's helpful to you. And maybe it'll help you to understand what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. He said, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The supper is about communion with Christ and about communion with each other. So I really want you to understand how important that church membership is. Without it, you don't have the right to come to the supper. 
And I think that that's clear in the New Testament by this very first example in Acts 2 when these were a, this was a church meeting together for doctrine, for fellowship, and the breaking of bread and for prayer. That is a commitment to Christ. That is a commitment to each other. So let me ask you, are you a member of the church? And I'm not talking about some mystical body that never meets. That's not a New Testament church. A New Testament church is a body of believers that meets together. They are covenanted together to love Christ and to love each other and to do Christ's work. Christ loved the church so much that he gave his life for it. Do you love it that much? Why aren't you a member of the Lord's church? Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we are indeed thankful for your church. We thank you, Lord, for this spiritual organization that you've given us where we can come together in fellowship, driven by that Holy Spirit desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you again for your son who gave all the examples that he gave in Scripture and then came down to that last night before he was betrayed, bent down and washed the disciples' feet. In a show of humility, he taught us how we are to love one another. And we thank you for the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us from our sins and enables the Holy Spirit to come and live in us so that we can have this one mind, one spirit, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Thank you, Lord, for all of these things. Bless your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.